Oh, yeah. You can do a bit better than that. Come on, the LBC is supposed to excite you, get you warmed up. You're not dozing, are you? Morning, Hope. Morning. There we go. That's better. Open up to Exodus 4, will you? If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I know there's a, there's a handful of uh, visitors and newbies. We love seeing uh, new people and uh, new faces, of course. So if you're new here and I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Tom, and it's my pleasure and duty and privilege to be the teaching elder, preaching pastor here at Hope. And so uh, we're laboring through the book of Exodus as we go uh, chapter by chapter, pulling out what wonderful things God has to teach us. We've, we've been introduced in chapter 1 to the Israelites, the, the Jewish people, the descendants of, uh, of Abraham who went down into Egypt and then were enslaved by Pharaoh and his, his armies, and they were turned into slaves, working hard. And, and it was a period of... Uh, about 400 years before God's chosen deliverer turned up onto the scene in the person of Moses, Moses the Levite. And we saw a couple of weeks ago how Moses, uh, through his own intervention and his own attempts to liberate his people or to start some kind of a, 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 a conscience uh, a, a sympathizing way of, way of sort of getting rid of his, his rich privilege, I guess. He was living in an office uh, of high estate in Egypt and he wanted to help out his enslaved uh, uh, kinsmen, but, but he wasn't able to do it in any kind of way that was either effective or chosen of God. And so he actually ended up being run out of the country because he murdered an Egyptian. How's that for submitting to lawful authority? Uh, murders an Egyptian, gets run out of the country, goes and finds himself a wonderful woman by the name of Zipporah. Going to hear a little bit more about her today. She's a She's a woman of action, tell you what. You'll, you'll know what we mean when we read it. So Zipporah, he has a son, Gershon, and then and he's married to the uh, uh, Zipporah, who is the daughter of Jethro, a, a high priest of the Midianite religion. And then last week, we saw this, this holy ground of all of sacred scripture. Exodus 3 is one of those places that, that as you come near, you just feel the need to, to take the shoes off, to, to come steadily and slowly, because we saw there for the first time ever in Scripture and what was accounting for us the first time in history, the revelation of God, the true creator, to mankind with his covenant name, Yahweh, meaning I am who I am or I will be who I will be. This is the, the all-sufficient, self-existent, the ground of his own being, God, who we were introduced last week as having the, the, the attribute of aseity. I, I hope you can uh, you kept the, the bulletin from last week. In those every week, there'll be a, a helpful doctrinal or theological article that you can go and read. Go and read up again on aseity from last week. Catch the sermon. We, we saw that God was holy and, and consecrated himself holy ground, and then we saw that he was the covenant God who was coming near to Moses, bringing Moses near to him in order to make good on the promises that he had made generations before to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so the plan has now started to un unravel for us the plan of redemption from Egypt by God's mighty hand. And today we're going to see God giving to Moses uh, uh, the, the power to do miracles, to display his might. And also we're going to see the kind of threats that Moses was sent to make to that serpentine leader, Pharaoh. So can you open up to Exodus 4? We're going to start in verse 1 and we will be reading all 30 verses, uh, sorry, all 20, uh, 31 verses of the book of Exodus chapter 4. Hear now the word of the one true living God. Then Moses answered, 
But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. God said, that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And so he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out again, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since, you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said again, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak to you for the people. And he shall be your mouth and you shall be as a God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and then made them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, Moses... When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If, he refuse, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. 
And Moses told Aaron all the words of Yahweh with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. May God bless his own inerrant word in our midst this morning. Amen. You are forgiven if you, if you got lost at any point there, or if you just wanted to say at some point, hand up, hold up, what? Okay, if at a few points there you, you wanted to just pause and get an explanation, that's, that's perfectly understandable. It's quite a colourful chapter, this Exodus chapter 4, and that's why we preach line by line and chapter by chapter through the Bible, so that we get to these places and we get to just have some fun explaining them. There's going to be five scenes that we're covering today. Moses still talking to God through the flaming bush, and, and then later when he goes down and speaks to his father-in-law, and then when God meets him and addresses him and threatens him and then again when he meets Aaron and when he goes back to Egypt and speaks to the people of Israel. We're going to go here from, from the commission that God is giving to Moses. We're going to wrap up the, the burning bush scene of the commission and we're going to go and see the mission actually start. He's going to go back to the people of Israel as he was commanded from, from the, 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 the wilderness back into the fray of Egypt that Moses thought he would never Step foot in again. Look at scene number one in verse, chapter, uh, verse one, chapter four. He comes up in this first scene with three different reasons or, or excuses, uh, uh, pleas to God to not send him. He's going to come up with three and God is graciously going to give him three provisions as to why those problems should not stop him. Look at verse one and his first response is, but behold God, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not truly send you. Now, we can understand that Moses thinks this way. Well, we, can, we can get in his mind that he's thinking, the Israelites will not listen to me. They don't like me. Because do you remember back in the earlier chapter, when Moses tried to be their rescuer and deliverer, they, they openly said, we don't want a part of you. The guy who, who, who was the criminal beating up the other dude, he said, get out of here, I don't want you justice. And the dude getting beaten up and the people around him kind of agreed and went, yeah, yeah we don't need you. You, you white-collar prince of Egypt, up from your, you know, your effeminate little office over there where you get your, your, your grapes fed to you and your palm fronds waved to you, thank you very much. But me and the lashes on my back say, no thanks. So we can understand that Moses is now here trying to fill in God to something he's clearly ignorant of. Just going, you know, they're not actually my biggest fans. Uh, I don't want to go back to the Israelites. They're not going to listen. And it's at this point that they say <laughs> that he is given the three miraculous signs. First of all, as you saw, was the taking of the, 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 the staff, his shepherd's staff, his weapon and his defense and how he would lead the sheep. He was to take that, throw it on the ground, and it became the serpent. And then the the... The other miraculous part of it was that he was to, to go and grab it, Steve Owens style, okay? not, not National Geographic and those soft American wildlife people. Steve 
Irwin style, where you grab it by the tail. Now, the risk there, if you've ever watched any of the old Steve Irwin stuff, the risk there is that the head is entirely free to lash and strike you. And so he's just picking it up by the tail like an ignorant child, and that is still extremely dangerous. And yet in that moment, it will become safe again and not a danger to him. And what this was, was, if I can be crass this morning, I'm going to be, it's just flipping the bird to Pharaoh. That's what it's doing. The middle finger straight in Pharaoh's face, literally. Do you know what sat on the forehead of Pharaoh in his, in his headdress and his, in, his, in his crown was the face of a cobra? It was, it was a symbol that between him and Ra and, and the gods was a connection of the divine so that he was the God-man king. The Pharaoh had in his head the symbol of power, the threatening face of a cobra, and here's God saying to Moses, you're going to make a cobra out of your stick, you're going to pick it up without getting harmed because that is what is going to happen to you and to Pharaoh as you go back in to take my people back. Don't fear Pharaoh is what was being symbolized in that snake miracle. And then there's another area where uh, the, the other miracle where he's told, all right, chuck your hand into your cloak, pull it back out, right? No, no doves, no unending handkerchief. It's not one of those tricks. He pulls it out and his flesh is rotting and falling off and, and, and leprous. It's like snow. Pretty dangerous. And then back in it goes and back out it comes perfectly healed like the other flesh. Now, now history tells us that in Egypt, especially this time, leprosy was a common, common, irreparable, incurable disease. The Egyptians were actually kind of known for their uncleanliness and their, their, their leprosy. Now, now, leprosy is not necessarily the, the same thing we know, that one disease that we call leprosy today. In the Old Testament, it's sort of, it's a catch-all for a bunch of disgusting skin diseases. And so, and, and, and so in Egypt, this was common. And what God was showing Moses and what he was going to be showing through Moses to the people is that your diseases, which the Egyptian gods only heal sometimes, and only after many, many sacrifices and being appeased, God can heal in an instant. God can heal in a moment the leprosy of Egypt. And so these, these two first miracles are a sign of grace and mercy and salvation and redemption, that that which is dangerous, Pharaoh and the serpent, will be put down. And, the, and that which is deadly, the, the leprosy and the sin and uncleanliness, God will step in and bring healing. But... God says, if they don't listen to the first, shall on the second. I, I get it. If they don't listen to the second, then you shall do the third. I don't think that this is a, this is a please believe me miracle. I actually think that this is the miracle of judgment. That if they do not believe what God has evidently shown before them through the signs, then he is to take the, the life source of all of Egypt, the Nile, they actually, they actually believed that the Nile was, was this God, this, this God happy who, was, who was, uh, would, would appear to the Egyptians in the manifestation of the overflowing of the Nile. That was, that was him slash her. He was a hermaphrodite demon God, okay? Do we still have those today? Yeah, kind of. They're called MTV, other things like that, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they, like us today, they sort of had this, this spectrum of gender among their gods, and this one god was a hermaphrodite. He would, he would come and fertilize the soil like a man, and then live amongst it and nourish the soil to life like a woman. And so this man, he, we'll just call him Zer, 
right? Zerhapi was, was, was integrated and married in the Nile, and there was a couple of other gods involved in the Nile as well. And so, but it was the life source of Egypt. That's what gave it its riches and its power and its access and made it such a superpower. And God's saying, go and take a bottle of it. Go and, go and bottle up some beautiful spring Nile water that goes for 10 bucks a, a, a bottle at the shops. Go, and then that source of life, turn it into a sign of death. Take the, the lifeblood of Egypt, pour it out on the ground, and it will become literal blood. It, it's kind of a, an upside-down irony here that, that he's showing them their, like, like blood is a sign of life, right? Until you can see it then it's a bad sign. Right? If you've got your own blood all over your hands, you're not supposed to conclude, I'm really alive. Look at all the blood I have. Right? And if you just shove it back in and zip something up and cauterize it, it's not better that, well, it's on the inside where it's supposed to be. If you've see, by the time you see your blood, it's kind of like your heart. You need one. You want to be sure you've got one. You never want to lay eyes on it. And so here he is, he's going, take the blood, pour it out, and you're not supposed to look at it and think, ah, life, blood, God's giving life. No, He's turning water into death by pouring blood out. If you will not believe the first two signs and show them the judgment that God can wreak upon Egypt and all those who do not believe. So firstly, he says, they won't believe me. God says to him, do these three miracles. They will believe. Secondly, though, look at verse 10 where he then says, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've started speaking to me, which is really only a few minutes ago, have I been, uh, I've been slow of speech, end of tongue. Now, now, I've been convinced this week by the commentators that this is in fact not a literal request to not be involved in the plan, nor is Moses even being truthful in his speech about not being eloquent. This is, in fact, as they, they look into ancient Near East uh, ways of doing covenants and, and, and kind of a, the way that you would be humble if a king was to call you to something or if somebody who is superior to you calls you to a service, there's sort of a, a ceremonial way that you would go about it to say, no, I really shouldn't, I can't speak, or no, thank you, I'm of a low family. We actually see this over and over again in the Old Testament. There's frequent times when they say things that just aren't even accurate. Somebody being called by God says, I'm of a low family of no repute, and they're literally one of the major families of Israel. It's actually a matter of a ceremonial, and, and I think if we can put this into context, you get it. If you're ever out to lunch with your European family members, right, or maybe, maybe your Asian family members, wherever you are, it's just, it's not in Australia. Sorry, uh, pure, pure blood Australians, you don't get this. But, but if you've got a, maybe an uncle who's Italian or a, or a Greek grandma or something like that, a Croatian something, you're out to lunch and they say, I'll pay for it. And now the polite thing, even if you've got three bucks in your university student account, you say, no, 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 that's okay, I'll pay for it, praying, just praying that they were honest and they're going to they're, they're, they're gonna, they're gonna make good on their, their offer. And they say, no, 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 I'll pay. And you're supposed to say something like, and this is just, a, this is just a, a class for the real stingy students among us, okay, this is how you're supposed to do it. And they go, oh, well, well, I'll at least pay for my meal. And she goes, no, I'm going to pay for it, don't worry, love. And you go, okay, well, well, at least let me grab the drinks. And he goes, no, don't worry about it, I got it, don't worry. And you go, okay, okay, well, well, let me pay for my drinks. And that, by that time she goes, I'm going to whack your son, I'm going to pay. Go, all right, all right, all right. Now, now, at no point did you ever mean or hope to pay. Although, had she asked you, will you get your meal, you would have. 
But really, the whole point was just showing a politeness. And a, it's a way of saying thanks instead of just saying cheers, appreciate the, f- the free feed. It's a way of showing, I, this is humbling. This is, this is too much. You're, you're so generous. I, I thank you. And, and it's kind of the same thing. Of, I've been convinced by the commentators that that's what Moses is really doing, especially because Moses was extremely eloquent in speech and had no speech dilemmas. Acts, now here's an inspired proof of this. The book of Acts, as Stephen is preaching about Moses, actually says explicitly that Moses in his growing up was powerful, mighty in word and deed. And then he spends the rest of Exodus preaching. Aaron doesn't speak for him every time. And the most of the Pentateuch is him preaching to enormous crowds of millions and thousands and hundreds. So it's not actually that he can't speak. It's that he's ceremonially sort of bowing to the process of saying to God, no, no, I won't do this. Uh, uh, please, I'm not, uh, I'm not eloquent. I'm not good enough to do this. And in which God says, still appropriate, even though it's not literally Moses' issue, God still rightly says, look, Even if you were born with a cleft palate, sewn shut mouth, muteness, deafness, blindness, you know who gave you that? The same guy who's talking to you. God is sovereign over every cell, every body part, every organ, every mutation that happens in us, both from our birth all the way till our old age and into our death. There is not a single molecule in the universe or a cell in our bodies that is not obeying God's plan for us. That's his encouragement to Moses, right? I don't need you to be a great speaker. I will be with your mouth, he says. Response two was, I'm not eloquent of speech. The, the answer back was, I can fix that no matter what. I will be with your mouth. And then his third one, this is actually what commentators say, actually kind of breaks the pattern. At this point, look at verse 13. <clears throat> but he said, Oh, my master, or oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, this is when he actually breaks the process of pattern, and he's literally asking, I'm not being polite anymore. God, I'm I'm putting my foot down on this one, all right? You're going to listen. I'm not going to go. Please, politely, uh, but but also rudely, because he just don't say this to Yahweh, but he's saying, please, send someone else. Else. And that is why at this point, God's anger is kindled against him. Now, now not impatiently, because he's put up with his nonsense already for 80 years, by the way, in his whole life. And even in this moment, he, he doesn't consume him and destroy him in the Shekinah glory flame that is before him. He's kindled against him in rage. The rage is checked to the account of Jesus who will die for Moses one day. God says to him, I have an answer for this as well. You need support? You need help? I've already got Aaron on the way. I've already spoken to your brother and he's mighty in word and he can do the speaking and he gives to him and Aaron this relationship of God and prophet. He'll say again later, he says, Moses, you will be like God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet. In other words, you have the authority given to you by me. You speak your words to Aaron and like a prophet, he repeats them to Pharaoh. This is this relationship that we will look at again later on when we go through latter chapters in this book. But this is scene one, God's, God's patience with Moses, his answers and his kind of excuses to not want to be involved. Nonetheless, God gives to him all that he needs. He gives to them the miracles, He gives to him a promise to be with his mouth and he gives him a promise that Aaron will come to you and help you. Look now at verse 14. 
we move into scene number two. Uh, sorry, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, now remember, this is a few weeks' travel from the, from the wilderness where he was, back over into Midian to the, to the northeast, and then to the south, and then down into Midian. And he says to Jethro, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. He, he kind of owes this to Jethro. It's more than just a politeness. He had actually married the guy's daughter. It's a big deal to take a guy's grandkids away. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back. Please let me go. But also, he was an employee of Jethro. So he did owe him that. He's gonna, about to take away his best, his best shepherd uh, that was himself. And then also is the fact that he would have promised himself or become a, a member of the Midianite citizenry, the citizenship. He, he, had, he had said to himself, I'm never going back. I'm never going to make it to Canaan, obviously. I'm never going back to Egypt. Here I am in Midian. This is my people. And so now all of the plans were changed. All of the, the previous thoughts were now, were now thrown into a huge spanner in the works. And so he has to go to Jethro and politely asks. And Jethro is in the plan of God. And he says, go in peace. All things are looking good so far. Scene three, look at verse 19. Jethro had said, go in peace. And now God reiterates to him what he is to go and to do. Verse 19. And Yahweh said to Moses in Midian, so before he'd made it back yet, in Midian still, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, he had two of them, and had, and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. That's a, that's a catch-all statement. They're not back there yet. All of the rest of the story today is not yet back in Egypt until he walks in with Aaron. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. It had previously been his staff. Now it is known as the staff of God in his hand. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, still a part of this commissioning, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Now, now if you read over this quickly, you think he's just repeating what he said earlier. But remember, the, the miracles earlier were for the Israelites. The miracles now, he's being told, are also going to be done in front of Pharaoh. Now, that's a little bit more threatening. That's a change in the script. God didn't include this in the first one when I agreed to do this. Now you're telling me I'm going in front of Pharaoh and flipping him the bird. I'm doing the miracles right in his face. This is, all right, this changes things. Listen to what he says. <coughs> uh, God says... Uh, halfway through verse 21, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I just need to pause here and say of this whole interaction and this ministry given to Moses, I, I know a bunch of us are going to be safe on this. A bunch of us aren't, okay? This is not a blueprint for evangelism. Power evangelism, so, so commonly thought that, you know, you go out there and you tell them about Jesus, uh, maybe mention his death, mostly his lovey-dovey heart and how he did miracles and how much he loves them. And, and then what you do is, like Moses, if they don't believe, then you put God on show by doing a miracle. 
Right, sit them down and go, if you don't believe, you're going to believe soon and lengthen their leg a little bit or, or touch them on the lower back or, or say something about a friend. Like, like there's, there's all sorts of people today who will look at Moses and say, here's a blueprint for our evangelism. You, you speak and if they don't believe, then you do miracles to convince them. But, but that is just not at all within the biblical scope of the purpose of miracles. Does God use miracles in his mission? Absolutely. Preach a sermon on it back in our Acts series. You can go back and have a listen. However, the purposes that God gives miracles for are usually confirming and emboldening the faith of those who already believe. That is mostly what we see in the New Testament, is that those who already believe are confirmed or emboldened, are strengthened in their faith. Sometimes it is to prove himself powerful over other gods and over other powers, which is what is happening here in in Moses' empowerment. Go and show my power over those other gods so that my people understand who is truly God and so that the Egyptians understand who is truly God. Often the miracles are to open an opportunity for for mission, sometimes for gospel proclamation. In Moses' scenario, there's going to be all sorts of miracles that happen to literally open doors through the ocean for them to be able to flee. So God was going to use miracles as a part of his mission to confirm the faith of the Israelites, to prove himself powerful over other gods, to open opportunities for them to flee. But here's another one that we see in today's passage. God's miracles are also effective tools of judgment against people who don't believe. God was here saying to Moses, Pharaoh will see all the miracles, but I'm raising him up giving him witness and giving him light so that I can bring him down with a crash. I'll harden his heart. He won't believe. He will be all the more judged. That's something that is often missed when people are just thinking, hey, if they don't believe, if they don't understand the power and the wisdom of Christ crucified, give them something really cool. Doesn't that sound foolish? But here they go. Then they go, oh, pray for something or pray for a healing or pray for a word of knowledge or something so that, so that then they'll believe. Now, here's the trick. Even if God does bless that with a miracle, you're still 50-50. If they do not believe then in the power of the gospel, at which point you ask, are they believing in the gospel or the miracle? At that point, you still have a question. Are they judged in their unbelief with a hotter hell than they had 10 minutes ago or not? It's not a blueprint for evangelism. As much as God loves to pour out miracles on the pursuit of the Great Commission, this is not a blueprint of evangelism. And this time, what God was showing through Moses to Pharaoh to get back to our story, it comes with a threat because it is largely for Pharaoh's judgment. Look at verse 23. Uh, Sorry, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. These on the street, these are known as fighting words. Like like he's he's now making death threats to Pharaoh face to face. You never say, this is what starts gang wars. This is what sparks sparks warfare is when one says to another, I'm going to kill your son. I feel like Mero, Foses, one of them, Moses, let's stick with that one. I feel like Moses at this point would have, would have sort of felt like backtracking and go, I, I really like what you said prior with the, what was the phrase you said? You said, let my people go. Good, 
diplomatic, to the point, God, uh, clear. He's going to understand what you mean. I'm probably not super confident to go in and threaten him that his firstborn son, I will kill your firstborn son. Do you hear how it sounds now that I'm saying it back to you, God, that might not be the most diplomatic, friendly, nuanced, winsome way to go about this conversation around the table? Maybe this is quite stark. This is quite rattling to Moses as he hears, this is the threat. He's not just going to go tell the people. He's not just going to somehow miraculously liberate them. He's being commissioned to go into the face of the highest authority and threaten his son with death. This is amazing. What God is doing is showing to Moses and to his people and to Pharaoh that Yahweh is not a diplomat. He's not a bureaucratic uh, politician bartering or negotiating for his authority. God, Yahweh, that we met last week in the burning bush, is the only God. Christianity is not one of many equally valid religions. It's not the most valid of many religions. It is the only religion of truth, because only Christianity has that one true God at its center, and as its authority, and as its revealer of truth. This is God speaking to Moses saying, don't you dare fear him. I don't. I'm going to kill his son if he dares betray me. I'm sending you in with a, with a zeal, with a commission. Declare my words. The church of God needs to recover this. That God says to his people, I send you with all authority in heaven and earth. Is that not what Jesus said in his final, final sort of chapter in life as he commissioned his own disciples and the church after them? I have all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, that God now calls us to be his witnesses as he called Moses here to be his unabashed, unafraid, unreserved witness. He has, he has chosen that week to accomplish the task and the church needs to, needs to be emboldened by that demand and that commission. What did, what did Paul say? Very similar themes. Paul said in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, is his cute little, little hallmark way to end out his letter and encourage the church. Hugs and kisses, XO, XO, Apostle Paul. Is that what he said? Romans 16, 20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan's head under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What's the theme coming through here, church? Don't say no to God when he sends us with a commission. What's he saying to every power, every authority, every serpent that tries to stand up in his way? You don't say no to God. He has all authority and might just kill your firstborn son. Now the next scene applies everything we just heard, all those threats, and holds them out in front of Moses as if to kill his firstborn son. Look at the next verse. Moses not only needed to listen and understand that God was threatening Pharaoh, so much so that he uses the language of, I'll kill your firstborn son, just like Israel is my firstborn son to me. So also in the next few verses, Moses is going to learn the lesson that even his covenant unfaithfulness puts him on the deadly side of Yahweh. Look at what happens next in verse 24. Uh, in this next scene, the word Moses is not in any of the text. 
It's put in there by English translators, but all we have is him and his, etc. Uh, uh, there's, there's about a hundred different tr- uh, ideas about what exactly this scene is taking place. All of them really apply the same way, but just so you know, there's, there, there's differences in, in what exactly this scene is happening. Who's God seeking to kill? Whose foreskin is thrown at whose feet? Why does Zipporah say that? Is that the best translation? If you think you have ugly family lunches, you, you don't beat, beat this, Zipporah and Moses. So in verse 24, I'm going to read it the way I think the commentators that I agree with would would translate it. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, surely now you are a blood relative to me. And so he let him alone because she said concerning the circumcision, you're a blood relative to me. What was happening is, I mean, I don't need to explain the scene anymore, I don't think, but, but I think that the person God met with and sought to put to death was Moses' son, the uncircumcised Israelite, the uncircumcised son of Abraham, the, the lineage of, of Abraham who did not have Abraham's sign and seal of circumcision on his flesh. God was seeking, as he's just finished off his threat, saying, you don't say no to Yahweh. I tell you to do something, you do it, or I kill your firstborn son. And now here's Moses learning this lesson. He doesn't get a free out just because he's the designated speaker. And what what an encouraging thought that God knew this before his call. I'm sorry to throw out the all too often said cliche, but God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He calls Moses. On the way, he threatens him with death because he's unworthy. Hey, ever had that? And then he makes him qualified and moves on with the mission. But, but the scene is that, that Zipporah, uh, as a lineage of Abraham, remember, the Midianites had Abraham's second wife as their, as their foremother. So they were sons of Abraham. They probably did circumcision or at least familiar with it. Here's Moses absolutely knowing about circumcision. He failed in his removal to Midian and, 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 and apparently some kind of rejection of the Israelite race. He failed to circumcise his son. And so on the way back, God met. And, and threatened his son with some kind of sickness, some kind of death. And, and however it happened, Zipporah knew what needed to happen. And she was not passive. <laughs> she, was not, she was not like Moses standing back and itching his head and making excuses. She takes the rock. I hope cleaned it. I hope sharpened it. Who knows? She chopped off her son's foreskin. And then it says that she put, put the foreskin onto, her, onto his feet. Uh, which might have been a son's feet, it might have been Moses' feet. In the Hebrew, the word feet is also the word for private parts. So we don't know exactly what the scene was, but I think what is going on is that Zipporah does the act and then says something ceremonial to God. As if to say, here's my blood relative. Here he is having received the sign he needed. God, accept this in your sight. And, and because she said this relating to the circumcision, God backed off and held his anger. The two points that was coming through here for Moses was, number one, you are supposed to be faithful to your own covenant if it's this covenant that you're seeking to represent in bringing salvation. Here's Moses, imagine it. Moses is coming back to the Israelite people saying, the God of Abraham has sent me. 
The God of Abraham is fulfilling his promises to Abraham, to all of Abraham's lineage. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm the sent savior from Abraham's lineage. And they'll say, what the heck is your son doing uncircumcised without the sign of Abraham? You don't even, you don't even take this thing seriously enough to do that to your son and you expect us to risk our lives in fighting the superpower? No, no, God needed to make him faithful to his own covenant in order to then bring salvation through that covenant. That was number one. Number two is a reminder that every life belonged to God. It's one of the reasons they would redeem the firstborn son. Uh, Many cultures back then would, would kill an animal in place of their firstborn son, knowing we owe God this life. But instead of killing our child, we'll kill an animal and we'll get the life back. We've, we've swapped, we've redeemed. And, and so it was even in the, in the Jewish mindset that God owned every life. And God was saying here to Moses, you, you don't get a free out simply because you're my chosen spokesperson. What a, what a jarring scene that is for us to read, let alone picture, but to understand that this God bringing salvation has not softened up. He's toughening up and he's bringing his hardened weapon, Moses, back to Egypt with a fury. Look at scene number five in verse 27. This is retrospective. He's looking back and saying, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. We don't know why Aaron has the freedom to just up and leave. He's a slave. Maybe the Levites were leaders at this point. We don't know. Maybe he actually snuck out. Maybe God God did some miracle to help him get out. We don't know. But long before, or at least a couple of weeks before, God even spoke to Moses at the bush. He'd spoken to Aaron to say, go and meet Moses. He's in the wilderness. So there Aaron had left and Finally, they meet and met him at the mountain of God where Moses had first seen the burning bush. They kiss. They they, they are so glad to be reunited after all of this time. And then Moses and Aaron went back into Egypt, quite a road trip. They went back, gathered all of the elders of the people of Israel. And verse 30 says, Aaron spoke all the words that Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Here's Moses using Aaron the very way that he was told to. Tell him what I told you. Show him the signs I showed you. He'll do them in front of the people as your spokesperson. Like I said before, I think this was the real guts of his fear. Moses' fear was me addressing the Israelites. And so Aaron was given to him, and he was of some standing. I mean, he could gather all of the elders to his place for a meeting. That's that's some kind of, of cultural authority. So he comes back in with Moses, and speaks on his behalf to give the credibility to Moses and his message that he was otherwise lacking and felt so self-aware of. And verse 31 says that the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and they had seen, and he had seen their afflictions, they bowed and their heads and worshipped. They were, they were gloriously joyful, singing their praises and worshipping God that he had seen their affliction, and visited them for salvation. We have all the more reason to praise today. Today as we gather, we are not just the, the Israelites in slavery coming together to some Moses and his brother to do miracles and, and speak some word of release of Egypt. We rather are the redeemed, holy people of God who have come near to his presence, not through the blood of a lamb, not out of Egypt, but out of our sin into salvation to the very presence of God this morning 
through Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross in our place, our salvation is secured. We have reason to say that he has seen our affliction and he has visited us and he has brought salvation. Amen? Amen. And, and Jesus, just like Moses, God made sure that Jesus fulfilled the covenant he was coming to fulfill, right? He said to Moses, you've got to do the circumcision thing if you're, if you're part of the Abrahamic covenant. And so also Jesus, he himself condescended to tick off all of the covenantal fulfillments and requirements in, in, in the Israelite covenant. So he's the perfect Israel, the firstborn son. He, he ticked off all the things required of Adam so that he could be the new Adam, the, the second head of the new human race under God. He came and fulfilled what he needed to fulfill so that he could be our redeemer. And, and just like Moses, he was attested to by God with mighty, wondrous acts and miracles. This was through his whole life. God saying to everybody, this is my son. This is whom I'm well pleased with. This is the one to listen to. This is the redeemer. It's amazing that in Jesus' earthly life, he had that transfiguration up on the mountain or when, when he shone white and only some of the disciples were there to see it. But who came down at his side? and started speaking to Jesus, Moses. And Luke's gospel tells us that when Moses is speaking to Jesus, they were discussing the exodus he was about to deliver in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? Moses and Jesus both had an exodus. Moses was through the Red Sea, uh, out of Egypt, but Jesus, his whole life was filled with miracles. The greatest was his resurrection. That's the great exodus, that he brings us out of death, that he brings us out of sin, and that he brings us to God for salvation and free forgiveness. That's Jesus, much better than Moses. But in Jesus, we also see the reversal of the threat. The threat becomes a blessing. The curse becomes a promise. The threat becomes the gospel. God said to Pharaoh and God said to Moses, I will kill your firstborn son. God says to us, I have killed my firstborn son. Salvation is at the, the price of the blood of Jesus. He is the one who crushes the head of the Satan, but himself was crushed under the weight of the wrath of God for you. He was, he was the atonement, the life taking our place so that he could die and we could go free. Forgiveness came at the cost of Jesus Christ. And just like God said to Moses, he knows every one of your sins, every one of your faults. Don't you dare, as I, as I speak the good news of salvation today, that Jesus has come, he has died. It's not future, it's past, it's done, it's finished. He died for us, he took our sin, he's purchased for us salvation and forgiveness that we can be new creatures, liberated from the sin of death and we can know God in this life. He gives to us his spirit and takes us to be with him for all of eternity. It is good news for salvation on offer for sinners. Don't play the Moses card. Don't play the Moses card and say, that's, that's nice, but I've got flaws. That's nice, but I've actually got sin that precludes me from receiving that forgiveness. That's actually oxymoronic. That's totally upside down. You need to be a sinner to get this forgiveness. The one prerequisite, the one box you have to tick in order to get eternal life forever through Jesus' blood, the one thing you need to be able to say is yes, I'm a wretched sinner deserving death. You can say that, then forgiveness is free for you today. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that as we consider Jesus here as the better Moses, the better Israel, the better Adam, as we think about Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins, wounds open, running awash with blood down to the ground, as he, as he sat there, hung there on the cross and he cried out for our forgiveness. Father God, as we think about him in all of his mercy and all of his power, the power of that blood to be able to forgive and atone, and justify, and and wash us clean when nothing else can wash us clean. With that consideration, please land for the first time in hearts this morning that do not know you savingly, that have maybe heard of you by the ear and considered, uh, considered some things they know about you. Maybe like the Israelites, their parents belong to you. They've, uh, they've heard about this stuff before. But God, would you give to them a personal, true, real heart felt faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to rest on his death in their place, to believe you, the God who spoke from the burning bush, the God who speaks from heaven and now who speaks to us through the word of God, who speaks to us and says that you have killed your firstborn son, that salvation is already purchased, that the way to eternal life is absolutely free. Please give to new people today the heart that believes and receives salvation. Father God, for those of us who know you, would we be be empowered and encouraged and emboldened today to believe the good news of the gospel every day afresh and anew that our sins are forgiven, that we belong to God, and that we are called, Lord God, to a a mission and a commission to preach the word to all nations, to, to speak the gospel to all those around us. Lord God, embolden us and fulfill us, for we have a better commission than Moses, and you are with us. And no one of our falls or our faults or our failings will, 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 will ruin or ultimately bring down your task of the Great Commission. Please exalt the Lord Jesus among the nations today. Please bring more and more people into his kingdom and use us to do it, Lord God. We pray all these things in his name, the name of Jesus, our glorious Redeemer. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.